Let's get into it. Hey, everyone. Really happy to be here. Uh, really happy for you all to be here as well. Uh, this is a part of the Demand Gen Expert series, which is uh, happens every other Thursday um, at normally at 12 p.m. Eastern. But today we've moved it to 1 p.m. Eastern, which is a little bit of a different time slot. Um, and we do the one the first Thursday every month, typically with Dave Gerhardt or some someone else, a, a guest. And then the one in the middle of the month I do where... Um, I love this session because I come into it with almost no notes. Um, I have a, a topic that I'm thinking about, and it's like almost a way to experiment off the cuff on like on new thoughts that I typically either haven't talked about before. Um, and uh, so it's a it, it, it's a cool event, and I get fired up for it because it's a different format than normally like me going through an agenda or answering a bunch of questions. So um, I hope it's valuable to you. There's a couple, and it's it's typically things that I'm seeing in real life right now, um, and so like I feel like there's a huge amount of relevance here on the sh- in, and I can feel some of the some of the forces that I'm feeling that I did that I wasn't feeling maybe 12 or 18 months ago. There's a a force right now coming from sales saying we need marketing to help to better own the go to market. Our go to market is busted. Right. And the part and the reason that the go to market is busted is not because our sellers don't know how to sell. It's because our marketing team is not driving revenue and creating demand for our sales team to capture. So 18 months ago, there were not that many sales leaders that were coming over and saying, Refine Labs, we have a go-to-market problem. We need your help. Stuff's happening way more right now. It's probably, whether it's happening in your business specifically, broadly in the market, it's happening more, which is that sales leaders recognize how critical marketing is to them hitting their targets in a way that was different than just like 18 to 36 months ago. That's a huge force. Um, There's another force right now as the internet continues to evolve about just how B2B buyers want to buy, how they research and discover things, and then the gap between that and what companies think their buyers do. And that's the part that I'm going to be covering a lot today. Um, But before I get started in that, I just want to broadly talk through the way that I see marketing changing and how how, what marketing should be doing today. Because people... Um, it's a, it's an increment. What's happened in marketing over the past decade is incremental moves, right? So we went from like, no, no tools. And now we got like HubSpot to integrate with our CRM. So we get a little bit of tracking and then we get, do some email and then we, but everything else has been a built around better collecting leads or better collecting things to help the sales team win. And at some point you got to look and you got to be like, is it, is, is it time to stop making incremental improvements and start to disrupt what marketing does, right? It's the same thing about like Blockbuster kept making their stores better, kept getting more DVDs, kept taking more promotions, started doing video games, they, incremental improvements when they needed to think about how am I going to disrupt myself? And companies should be thinking the same thing in all facets of all facets of business, but in marketing right now, it's just such an obvious, easy win. Not easy, but it's an obvious win that the the incremental move of using marketing as sales team's assistant to somehow create a metric like leads or MQAs 
or something like that so that our sales team goes and tries to sell to people that didn't ask to talk to us. For most companies, that's what demand marketing is right now. It's driven about how do we create a trigger and then how do we go and try and do sales to those people when they didn't ask specifically to talk to our sales team. And the thing that I'm trying to help people understand is that that model was created at a time in a different time in the world. There were no contact databases like Zoom Info or Cognizant or Seamless AI or any of the other ones that exist. There were no contact databases. So sales didn't have that. It was whatever was in the CRM or marketing had to go and get the contact information. That was one big step. The second thing is that there was an immature internet. Buyers didn't know how to get pricing. They didn't know how to interact with their peers. They didn't have review sites. They even vendor websites were very immature in the 2012 to 2014 era. And that's when this stuff started to really take off. Um, and fast forward to 2022, marketing should have zero involvement in this stuff. Your RevOps team can go and pull intent data and serve that up to an SDR and they can cold call somebody out their gate. Marketing does not need to be involved in that anymore. So RevOps needs to start taking control over how are we going to trigger outbound actions and sales actions that marketing used to do. Marketing used to be responsible for creating the trigger and delivering the trigger to sales. Now we have an intermediate, right, with the more specialization and things like that. Marketing also used to be responsible a lot for sales enablement. It happens a lot in companies right now, like set up a separate sales enablement function, set up a separate RevOps function so that your sales team can operate and work to achieve their targets on their own. You have alignment on the strategy so that marketing is working with sales, but marketing doesn't need to be, you know, hand delivering this, like all these leads or all these things to sales and what marketing needs to be focused on instead is how do we create an unfair competitive advantage for our business? That's it. That's what marketing should be doing right now. And I'm going to break down some steps about how to do that. But at the moment in like, that's all I've focused on as a marketer. And I'm not even sure I call it market anymore. I literally call it strategy and go to market. How do I create an unfair competitive advantage for my business? In 2017, when I was working for a medical device company, I was able to, through Facebook and Instagram ads, I could target every single one of our buyers at every single one of our accounts. And I was delivering them clinical information every day. Here's a case study about how this patient got helped. Here's a clinical trial that worked. Here's an expert that you trust and a video of them talking about how they use our product every single day. While our competitors, big billion dollars of organizations, global companies, what, what do they do? They wait to build a trade show booth once a year where the buyers might show up. How much of an advantage is that? You get to communicate with your customers every single day where they hang out versus you wait for them every whatever, 12 months could be longer, right? It literally was an unfair competitive advantage because I would put out information and a hundred buyers would comment back and say, I don't understand this. Does this work? What do I do? Like, I've never tried your product. Could you come have our sales team show me this? Like all those things at scale while other companies are cold calling and setting meetings and running trade show booths right now in my company, it's been happening for the past three years. What I, what I do figure out where in the where is the market right now which is three four steps ahead of where the rest of the the b2b market thinks the world is and how do i win in these places because it creates an unfair competitive advantage 
on LinkedIn, the combination, and it's just been building on top, but LinkedIn in 2019, podcasts all the way through, started in 2020, all the way through, events, now YouTube and TikTok, and it is a unfair competitive advantage through the scale and all the employees at my company that do it because nobody that's competing with me, I don't, I don't even think about it as competition, but nobody that could be an alternative to what we're doing does anything close to it, which creates a massive advantage. And that's what marketing needs to be focused on. How do I find that those things that can't be replicated in any other way in our business that doesn't get us, you know, 10% more leads or doesn't grow revenue by, you know, 3% next quarter that sets us up long-term to grow way faster than we ever could without it. That's what marketing should be focused on now. If you get them out of lead gen MQL mode, because you can literally do all of that through data and operations. Now you literally don't need that anymore. If you get them out of that, then they can purely focus on these steps. Number one, in order to create an unfair competitive advantage through marketing or, or go to market, how do we get the insights? Nope. No marketing teams focus on this because they're too busy collecting leads. How do we get the insights so that we know things that our competitors don't know? I get this all the time. At the beginning, I would literally interview CMOs on, a, on our podcast. It wasn't even a podcast at that point. I would just re record it on Zoom and put it on YouTube afterwards, but we didn't even have a podcast. I would interview CMOs and I would get to really understand what's going on. I would get insights, what technology they're using, how are they spending their budget, how are all these things working? That was the first evolution. I get tons of insights through uh, LinkedIn comments. I get tons of insights through the comments in these events. I get tons of insights through all the questions that get asked to me. I get tons of insights from all the, the people that uh, disagree with my perspective and my thoughts. Like who's disagreeing with me? Why do I, why do I think they're disagreeing with me? Probably because I'm telling people that there's other ways to do attribution and they sell attribution software. So no wonder they're disagreeing with me. They have a financial stake in you thinking a different way. So, um, how do we actually get the insights that fuels everything underneath that? If you don't have the insights, you're flying blind. It's step one in marketing is we need to be able to understand our customers, who they are, why they are that way, what they think with a clean, with a, with an unbiased view. I don't care what people tell me. All I care about is that it's the truth. And then it's my job to figure out how am I going to react to it? It's, this is the reality. Most companies look at, this is the reality, but I'm going to resist it, right? Buyers don't want to, don't want to hear from us in cold calls or buyers don't want to talk to us at this stage of the buying journey that they resist it. They create intent data and they make pretend to themselves that their buyer wants to talk to them at that point, right? Instead of resisting it, how do I lean into it? Which creates a superpower. The insights. From the insights, how do we create a unique perspective that the market needs that aligns with our business and company goals? So the market needs a new person. If the market doesn't need the perspective, then you don't have it hit right yet. What does the market need? Because I've gotten the insights. I understand what people are struggling with. I understand exactly who they are, why they're struggling with it how our business fits into it, both in the short term and the long term. And I've created a narrative and a perspective that other people want to be a part of because they see it as true, right? All the people on this event here, 
the reason that you're here is because you see you see the world similar to the way that I do and you see that there's an opportunity for either yourself personally, your business or both. And so you need as a company, you need to be able to lock in what is the perspective in our business and why do the people why are the people in the market going to care about it? Next, and this is one of the this is the place where you see it the most, where it comes out the most is how do we communicate with customers? If you can unlock this and you have the unique perspective and you do it in the right way, this is where the advantage starts to really get seen. Because nobody else is listening to, uh, I'm just trying to pick an example here. Um, Like there aren't a lot of people that do things like what my company does that people listen to right now because they don't communicate with customers or prospective customers. And so the way that I communicate in the places while other people focus on writing blogs that people don't search for and don't find and things like that, or they wait to get an RFP from somebody, and I'm out here on LinkedIn every day creating awareness, creating word of mouth, um, all of these different details, the communication of how you get to customers, if you can do it in a way that they like, in a way that they respond positively to, and a way that you can do it frequently, then you create massive competitive advantages. Facebook and Facebook and Instagram, you could I was do, doing those in 2017, still works. Doesn't work as well as then, but still works. Um, or some organic channels, community channels, it doesn't really matter what the channel is. The key is ca- can you get the elements of can I do this frequently and do people respond positively to it? Next is that if you're able to get that communication channel rolling, you create a feedback loop that fuels everything. So I no longer need to go out and look for insights. The insights come to me all the time because of the flow that's happening. So we're communicating with people and we're getting a bunch of things back automatically. And then how does that feedback then influence? What are we going to talk about from a messaging standpoint? How is our content strategy going to change? And how is our product roadmap going to change? Because these insights are better than what your product marketing team is getting most likely. So you got to be able to figure out how do I get both product marketing, how do I get the the company revolving around the idea of like, we have a community of hundreds or thousands of people that could be our buyer. They're giving us insights every day, qualitatively. That's why people struggle with this is because it's all qualitative insights. The qualitative insights are actually way better. They give us qualitative insights. How do we harness that, package that, and then feed that back into product development? The next one, one of my personal favorites how do we create a best-in-class buying experience? This is could be such a competitive advantage for so many companies. And I'm going to go on a tangent here because this goes into the topic of what does it mean to be buyer-centric? And so best-in-class buying experience is a perfect example of why how companies are not buyer-centric. What does it mean to be buyer-centric? It means that we're going to gather all of the insights, like I mentioned at the beginning, gather all the insights, and it doesn't matter what our buyers tell us. All that matters is they're telling us the truth. And then no matter what they tell us, as long as we're confident that it's the truth, it's our job to re-architect our organization and strategy around what our buyers need. So I'll give you a couple of examples. And this is this is only focused right now on net new acquisition buying experience, right? This is not the customer experience. This is not getting feedback about what feature you should build. This is about how do I create a buying experience for a new customer 
so that they can come in and they can efficiently buy a process that works through an enterprise level sales representative. And, or maybe you need a different go to market. Maybe you do the survey and the research. People are like, I don't want to talk to your sales team. And then that you got to react to that as a business too. So literally almost no companies do this. I need to go and get the insights about how do my buyers want to buy. You want to do surveys. You want to do qualitative research. You want to do interviews. You probably want to do closed loss analysis. You might want to do some level. So there's a lot of different ways to get the data. And then when people tell you, I don't want to talk to your sales team until I've accomplished these three or four buying tasks. Or like, I don't want to talk to your sales team until I've used the product, right? You might get that quite a bit. Or when I want, like when I want to meet with your sales team is when I say I want to meet with them. And then you could ask like, do you want our people to reach out unsolicited and give you information? You can figure out how to craft all the questions so that they're not biased so you get the right information about what do people need? And then while every other company resists it, you lean into it. It's all I do is that when buyers tell me that things are changing and where they're getting information and how they want to do this and when they want to buy, all I do is cool. I'll figure out how to make it work. Now I know what you want. I can figure out how I can make it work for me too and also give you exactly what you want. And that's the, that's the gap as companies get bigger, they get less agile and they, it, they get less customer focused. And so if you're a small, I talked to a series D company they, uh, yesterday, they were, they were so caught up in like our competitors are huge and they outspend us by 20 X on Google or something like that. And I'm like, that's awesome. They want to, they want to waste that much money on Google ads. We can, we can go and figure out how to be smarter than them. And the, the reason that we're going to win is because we're going to be more agile we're going to be smarter, we're going to be more innovative, and we're going to be more buyer-centric. That's how small companies beat big companies. And it's not even really beating them. It's just you you win, right? Um, and so having that level of insights allows you to craft a process that buyers want. Um, and so that's a little bit of a, a tangent off that, but that was about how do we develop a best-in-class buying experience? And then the last part of this, this segment, if we do all those things, what advantages does that create across our entire go-to-market team? Now we got the insights. Now we got a best-in-class buying experience. Now we got some of those things figured out. Now what can we change? Oh, maybe we don't need to have these 65 people cold calling accounts anymore. Maybe we could re-architect exactly what that looks like based on what buyers need. Maybe we don't need to have a solutions consultant and a salesperson and this third person working deals. Maybe we can figure out how we change this around. There are, there are ways that if marketing does what they're supposed to do today, which is create unfair competitive advantages in the market, if they do that, then it creates flexibility across the rest of the go-to-market team about how to change. The reason the rest of the go-to-market team can't change right now is because marketing's not delivering so they got to overinvest in outbound sales and transactional stuff that are high volume because it's the only way they can continue to grow and they just grow in a way that's not buyer centric and that's not cost efficient. And so, uh, I'm going to get close to, to wrapping up here and we can move into questions, but that is, that's my thinking about where marketing should be right now. We need to be a, we need to be focused on creating things in the business, growth paths in the business that no other place, no other department can create. 
And that's really like they call it the marketing multiplier. Like we need to figure out how ever how we're a force multiplier in the business, undeniable impact on the business. Um, and there's a lot of I talk about the details and the nuances all the time about why companies don't do this because of attribution and how they score marketing and how they think about time sections of time in their in their growth path. There's a lot of reasons why companies don't do it, but it doesn't change the fact that this is what it sh- this is what it should be. And so I appreciate you all showing up and listening to me chat and would love to uh, maybe take a couple questions. It doesn't have to be related to this topic, so I'm happy to go in whatever direction would be helpful for everyone. Let's bring John on. How about that? Hey, guys. Thanks, Angelica. Um, Hey, Chris, I'm interested when you think about the surveying and, and the research that you do with what your buyers are looking for and how they want to be sold to, you know, typically it's a complex process. There's multiple people that are involved, influencers, users, you know, budget owners, approvers, gatekeepers, all have very different agendas. How do you balance the feedback that you're getting from each of these stakeholders that may be giving you very competing information? Um, I think that you, the first step is to simplify. So um, we were like we were selling into hospitals, right? And so inside of hospitals, you got a bunch of holes, you, you got hoops you got to jump through. Same different thing. You got procurement, you got IT that needs to sign off. Typically, those two are blockers. But then you got the people that really drive the decisions. You got physicians, you got nurses, you got respiratory therapists, and people like that. The targets for us are the people that make the decisions because if some if a physician says this is going to be better th- for our patients then the organization is going to figure out how to make that work as long as it's financially viable. Right. So I don't, I don't try and uh, I don't try and win with procurement. If, if my buyer wants to buy it, then they're going to get through procurement with the help of our sales team. So I'm not like, I'm not looking for those types of blockers. I think that people go, they think about the buying group too broad because of what Gartner says, right? Like 17 people are involved in the buying process. Now, really it's like, it's three it's one person's really making the decision and there's influencers as a part of it, but there's really only a couple people that are going to drive the decision. And so I think that just thinking about it a little bit differently and then figure out who are those people and then focus on them. Um, who are the people that are going to champion the sale to sign off on the deal and be the person that's going to implement it? Like, so that's a, in, in, a different way to think about it to simplify from a survey perspective, because when you're going through a buying process and you're trying to optimize a buying experience, you're not optimizing it for procurement. You're optimizing it to get the the person who wants to buy educated and all the way through the process. And then you gotta, you gotta have a process to get through procurement, but I'm not like, I'm not, I'm not thinking about that. Um, I'm not surveying procurement to say those types of things. If you got that far, you could eventually do that. I just wouldn't prioritize it. So pick your couple of key buyers um, and then I distribute the exact same survey and then just slice it by job title or job function. So to keep it less biased, the survey goes out to everybody. Um, and then it's like, so it was all revolved around how do you buy medical technology to physicians and these people? Um, when, you are, when you are evaluating a medical technology, what's the first thing that you do? open-ended text field. You get qualitative insights right there. And I'm going to take a step back because it's not, the survey was the second piece. The, the first step is qualitative insights. And so I would go out to these hospitals. I would talk to people. I would watch sales conversations in person, in real life. I would see pe- how people reacted, which gave me the qualitative insights to know what questions to ask in the survey. What should the, 
Like, what should the survey be about? I knew that it was about buying experience because I saw how broken our experience was. Um, so then you get to the survey, you can say, um, what did I say? Um, when evaluating a medical technology, what's the first thing that you do? Open-ended. And then you can say, what are the, when evaluating it, what's the sources that you trust? And you can go through all the, I think there's like 10 questions there. And then you can look at, okay, what do f physicians say? And how is that different than respiratory therapists versus different than nurses? And is nurses different based on whether you work in the ICU or med surge? So there's like, you can, I think you can slice and dice it that way, but I wouldn't try and, I guess the easiest way to say this, I wouldn't try and boil the ocean. I would pick who are your really top, top targets. And then I would understand first qualitatively. And then if you need to assess it in a large scale, uh, like quant format, then you can use the survey. But typically I find you get better, better, faster insights qualitatively. You'll see patterns. You go out and talk to 10 people. You'll definitely see patterns about what people say and what people think. No, that was great. Thank you, Chris. Happy to help. Okay, Liam has a question. We're going to bring him off mute now. Hey, man. How's it going? Hey, great to meet you. Um, question for launching on potential new channels. Somewhere in, in, your, in the earlier um, conversation you were having, how do you balance launching on new channels? And sorry, how do you balance the potential for not necessarily seeing those leading indicators of success versus maybe it's my messaging or angle that I'm launching with. Is it a process of rapidly testing a bunch of angles and a bunch of different messaging to try to connect? Obviously, you sort of know which audience you're going after and hopefully you know which audience you're going after and what connects with them. But if it's new, like say launching on TikTok, is, is it the angle or messaging you went with versus is it the channel that's the problem? There's, I got, I got two two parts of the answer for you. So um, one part is that you should know the messaging works and you've validated it in real life with buyers before you go and scale digital, right? So a lot of people try and use digital as a test and then they start running ads and then they're like, uh, this message got a 0.3% better click-through rate. I guess it's a better message, you know what I mean? And I, I find that you typically make the wrong decisions that way. Um, by running in quant. So it's like, um, figure it out in person with your buyer, whether that's product marketing, but I recommend like every marketer do stuff like this. Even if like when you're in demand gen, it's still like the, the insights are so critical and not a lot of people do it. Um, the second piece that I'll say is that, um, in a lot of channels, you should be getting the qualitative, right? So if it's, if the message is resonating, people will be in the, whatever it's the message or different things, people will comment, people will tag people. They'll ask questions. Um, they'll present objections, right? So, like, um, if they're if you're putting stuff out initially, like you gotta say, you gotta say, am I putting stuff out and am I getting anything back? If you're just like screaming out in the woods and you're not getting anything back, that's an indicator too. And that could be an indicator of the uh, the channel or the message. So I like to. Um, you got to have confidence that the messaging and the positioning works before you move to digital, because then you don't, it's impossible to troubleshoot. You don't know why it's not working. Would you not suggest that the messaging and the channel sort of need to line up and that you need to tweak messaging based on channel instead of it just being broad messaging across all channels? Mm, can you give well, me a practical of an angle thing? Yeah. Can you give me a practical example of that? Yeah, sure. Let's say let's let's use TikTok. Would you not say that Refines Labs, whatever you're going with, 
I know you guys are doing stuff on TikTok, but what you're doing and saying on TikTok is different than what you're doing and saying on LinkedIn. Mm, and are you asking if that's a the right or wrong thing to do? No. So what I'm trying to, I guess, what I'm trying to say is, in terms of messaging, and is 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 want to put this? Um, yeah. Is what you're going after on is what you're. Is what you're educating buyers on TikTok, I guess, different than how you're educating buyers on LinkedIn? I got it. And, and yep. so it needs, so the messaging needs to be different based on the channel, but you can't be sure that that messaging is going to work because it needs to be more adapted to the channel. Yeah, this is our uh, our stacking growth framework, right? So, like at the beginning, it's running experiments, and I'm going to fast forward. Like, so we did the experiments, then we got positive signals from LinkedIn. Then we figured out that if we kept doing the same stuff on LinkedIn, that it was repeatable. And then we figured out how to operationalize it. And so how do we be able to do this more frequently and more consistently? And then we figured out how to go and scale it. So once we operationalize, how do we create more volume, better content, more production, things like that. And we do that for every channel. So you like LinkedIn is rolling. It's already beyond it's at scale. And then when we're going out to a TikTok, for instance, you start over at the beginning. So it's like now we got experiments, right? The first experiments are typically let's just let's just take like repackage and reformat the content that's already working in other places and do that in this channel. And you start to like see, oh, like there's nuances here. Like we need to have more visual cues. We need to be more considerate of what the first three seconds are like or even the first like less half second on TikTok, right? So you, you start to get little nuances, but and you start making changes and then you wait for positive signals, right? So then positive signals, people commenting back, people saying things, which is part of the process that I'm in right now. And now I'm trying to figure out how do I make it repeatable? Like I don't really have on LinkedIn, I got it locked in, right? I know what to do. I know generally what the results are going to be at TikTok. I don't yet. So like, how do I, how am I able to keep doing this? And I'm getting positive signals and I can do it consistently. And so that's where we are there. So the, I guess the key is um, if you start over on each channel, then it becomes very clear if you need to adapt the messaging, right? So like we are in a, and the it's par partially on the channel, it's partially on the strategy, right? So like LinkedIn is a very niche, uh, a niche audience for me. I talk about very like not wide stuff, like not like the, the, the one time in this my career and tell you a motivational story. I don't do that on LinkedIn. People do that and they get scale from it, right? That's not my approach. But for TikTok, maybe I am going to take a scale approach. Maybe I am going to talk about career stories and entrepreneurship and places where I didn't, where I failed and what I learned. I might do that. It might work better there. Um, so those are some of the ways that I think it's. I don't think it's really clear cut. Um, but the, I think the the thing for you is to when you move into a new channel to try and work through that five-step process and be very honest with yourself about what part of the process that you're in, because most companies try and get to step four, operationalize and then scale before they've gotten any positive signals. And you end up just right. putting you uh, scale programs point. and put resources on things that don't work. So messaging stays relatively the same, take into consideration nuance and channel though. Mm. I'd even better, I, I think I'd better frame it is that like, our messaging isn't changing, but the content strategy might. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah, understood. Cool. Thanks for the answer. Appreciate it. Yeah, that was a great chat. Thanks. Thanks, Liam. Okay, we have Joel up next. Hey, Chris. Thanks for uh, taking the questions. Yeah, of course. Um, 
my question is how does marketing build a point of view with strong subject you know matter expertise so that then it can be communicated to the market to the audience over and over when the subject matter is really dense probably much more advanced than what marketing can understand and the subject matter experts have dull personalities or they're terrible on camera so for example accounting the the subject matter is really dense and it's also super wide variety across a you know a crap ton of industries and service lines and then to people like accountants a point of view is normally seen as is risky even though it's not it's actually it's it it's it's not risky but they see it so mm -hmm. my struggle is is how do you find the, the the part in the middle where that works for an industry that's different than say SaaS. yeah i mean like uh people that do w what i like what i do if they were assessing it they would say what i do is risky too i take so much i take so much heat and and credit like people try and discredit me and things like that because i have a a, a very different point of view than what most of the market is being told um and i think that's part of why it works. So I think this, like you almost are trying to hedge, right? You're sort of like, how do I tone this down so that like it works? I think that you like removing that is a, is a part of success. So like not thinking about what are people going to think about this and think more about how do I craft a point of view that the people in the market need that they know is true, but no one's talking about. That's the, that's the thing. That's a great way to say it because all I did to develop this point of view was I would go out and talk to a bunch of marketing leaders and sales leaders and be inside of their CRM and see what the CEO's thinking. And I would assess all the things that they're doing. And they would tell me, these are the things that aren't working. This is what's broken. They didn't know how to solve it, but they knew exactly what's broken. So all the stuff that I say, why people like latch onto it is because it's true. You know what I mean? And, it, and the, the way that I know it's true is because I didn't come up with it. I didn't architect this. Like people just told me it and I just communicated back to people uh, and nobody else is in a position or no, nobody else wants to stand and have this be the hill they're going to die on. You know what I mean? And I'm sure. willing to do that. So um, if there's like an accounting perspective, I think the first step and I, um, I would uh, push back on you that like marketing can't understand it maybe some marketers can't understand it but you need to have a marketing strategist that can reverse engineer any buyer and understand the subject ma the subject matter at a level that's necessary to be able to craft positioning in a story and be able to ask the the buyers questions in a way that's intelligent so i was able to in the medical world like i was interviewing neonatologists pediatric intensivists people that have gone to college for like 12 years to get this degree and then did whatever it's called afterwards for like six more years before they could actually practice medicine. And so they've gone through all this time. Um, but through like my engineering background, understanding science, STEM and medical quite well, and doing a lot of reading and talking to experts within six months, I could talk at a level that was at least competent with these okay. people and start to understand them. So it might take a little bit of effort and research, but somebody in the marketing team has got to be able to understand the, the dense subject matter from the buyer. And then, okay. um, because I, my belief is that I don't, I, I don't like saying that it needs to be put in marketing anymore, but you got to have in your business, a strategist that can go out and, un, and do the activity that I'm about to say, go and talk to people, understand what's going on, be able to pull that information out, understand what's not working, be able to synthesize that information about 
this is the stuff that's not working. What's most important? Try and make hypotheses as to why it's happening and then connect. And then if you have built the product the right way, the things about why it's not working are starting to get connected with the product that you sell. Um, so uh, I think that's a good process to, to go through is that the way that you understand, the way that you craft the point of view is just by qualitatively collecting the insights from your buyers. Yeah, I guess that's how I did it. Have you, okay, then to follow up, I, that makes sense to me. Have you found, uh, so in, in the case of accounting again, is how they, they normally go to, to, to market with content. It's a lot of rules and regulations. My theory is, is that they go to market with information that's, that's five times more advanced than, than what the market really cares about. They just trust the accountant to do that information, just you know, basically make it happen. That's what I'm paying you for. Have you found that in, in the other areas that you've been where the information the company was previously marketing with was too in the weeds and it actually need, needed to be backed down and simplified into more like core problems and, and core views? Mm, are you talking about like an accounting firm or accounting yes. software? Yeah. No, no, an, an accounting firm. Yeah. So here, here's the struggle. I've been listening to you for like a year and a half. Love everything you say. And I sit there, but I don't have, I, I'm not quite in your industry, mm-hmm. but so much of it applies. And I'm like, crap, that works there. This works there. This mm-hmm. works there. Right. And so it's like with an accounting you know, firm, they go to market across 10 different segments with 20 different services. And yet I do believe this tactic could just be gangbusters for how, them. How, how big are these types of companies? How many employees just so I can give you better advice. Yeah, um, so I, I've got one that's, I've got one that's, you know, it's relatively small, 16 million employees, uh, 60 million revenue this last year employees. I'm not positive, real smart, mar- small marketing team, mm-hmm. but I've also, you know, worked with similar 50 million and uh, probably 120 or so. Yeah. Okay. And, and the way they earn business is so incredibly slow. Totally. The sales cycle Yeah, because is they're long. viewed as a commodity. Yep. Yeah. Um, so I could, uh, on the content side, I think that you need to have in like a balance between top level, I'm talking to the C level about the strategy and detailed level about like the people that are going to be either using or working with us on a day-to-day basis could take this information and be more successful and it has teeth, it's detailed. I think that's why my content works. I can talk just as well to someone that wants to do the details of Facebook ads or a CMO that needs to understand how am I going to fundamentally change my buying experience, right? Mm-hmm. And so because of the the breadth of the ability, I think that it creates a lot of credibility. Um, and it also helps you work in two different ways. You have a bottoms up, right? Content working with like a marketing manager or a director. They implement it. They think it's great. Then they bring you to the CMO and you have stuff where you have content stream exposed to CMO, CMO thinks this is great and then starts to push it down and both ways. So I think it's advantageous to have both. Um, I could, uh, like I'll go in two different directions on the accounting side. We have time and I think this will be useful. Like the real solution to the thing that you said, right? They got 10 segments. They're viewed as a commodity. Their sales cycles are wrong. This is a business strategy issue. And the, the unlock is segmentation. And so you got to go out and you say, out of the 10 segments, who are our best customers and why? Yep. And then once you, and then if you're able to segment that, then you move into the next thing about like, why do they love us? And then you've got to start breaking down. How do we read, how do we re-architect the service that we have for them? Right. This is uh, for 
the advice for you should be like just exactly what I've done for my company, right? We sell marketing. It could sell to anybody. Instead of selling to anybody, we started to narrow it down. Now we know these are the companies that have a lot of success. We went from like millions of accounts that we could sell to, to 10,000, right? And then once you get to the 10,000, like they pretty much all use HubSpot or Salesforce. They pretty much all think about this way. They pretty much all have around this level of marketing budget. They all kind of do these things. And then the products and things that we, the products, services that we have at the moment are directly crafted around the infrastructure that they already have, the people on their team that they already have, and the core challenges that they have. Then the messaging and positioning of the business comes through that, right? So now we know who we're going after, we know why the product's specific, and then we have the messaging. And then you get to the the content strategy. So there's sure. sort of like this element up for, uh, in front that I think would be really beneficial. It's really hard to do. It's really hard as a consultant, especially to go and tell a company to do this, let alone them to try and do it themselves. And so, and I'd be lying to say, if you, if you just did the content part, it would definitely work better, right? Even if you're, even if you're selling a commodity or even if, even if your buyers view you as a commodity, if they have more awareness to you as a commodity versus others, you're going to win more. Um, so you could just have the, you could run the exact same content flow, um, and I would, you got to figure out like who, um, you mentioned like the people are, you know, accountants are stale. Like I'm not, I hope there's no accountants on here. Right. I don't really, I don't really believe that, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. It's a stereotype, um, to figure out how, like, what do I need to do differently than this marketing event that Chris Walker puts on to make it work for them? Maybe it's like, a screen share in Excel, right? Maybe it's maybe it's like you're not even on the speaker. It's like a voiceover. Um, maybe it's not live. Maybe it's a recorded like like guided course. There's there's so many angles, but it, like it really starts in the insights. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you. I Happy to help. That. Yeah. Okay. We have a few other people in the queue. Let's see how many we can get to. Let's roll. Adam, you're up. Hey, Chris. Thanks for uh, taking my question. Good talk as always. Thank you. Ready to do it. Um, yeah. So mine, uh, it's less. It's not really a strategy or tactic question. It's more of a career type question. So I've been doing a lot of career um, planning uh, of my own career recently, and kind of where I want to go in my next roles. And I, I don't know if it's just confirmation bias because you know, going to demand gen live every week and stuff but i'm really looking to, into SaaS as just an exciting new place because there's so many different types types of companies lots of different types of uh you know, you know selling in lots of markets just seems a lot more dynamic than the industry i'm currently in i'm in manufacturing engineering um kind of like industrial um mm -hmm. similar to that so my question is that I've been kind of kicking around in my head. It sounds like you came from a place where you worked at uh, companies doing manufacturing and selling of physical products. So what are some of the advantages you think people in that industry can bring to a SaaS market? And what are some of the disadvantages they may face moving into that where, you know, places they might need to really upskill and work on? It's an awesome question. I basically did this, right? Like my first five years of my career were in profitable companies that sold physical products mm -hmm. at margins that were better than SaaS. It was wild. Mm -hmm. We had 90 plus percent margins on hardware wow. products because they were so specialized. It was mm -hmm. guarded by regulations. Uh, it was in like 
on a like generally like sort of quote unquote unattractive markets. Yeah. Um, and so we would, I don't know what the exact numbers, but we would make a product for like $3 and sell it for like 200. It was wild. Um, <laughs> and then you do that hundreds of thousands in volume and you're like, we're making a lot of profit here. Um, so I think, uh, if you're coming from that angle, like the things that I learned personally were like how to put together a business case. What does the CEO care about when we're going to go and invest $3 million in a product? Um, how are we going to improve gross margins to create a better business? Um, like I, I learned business fundamentals there, mm -hmm. which is something that can be v like very, very important for marketers and SaaS. Yeah. So like I was, uh, I've just found that most marketers don't have a, a, a like core base of like, I understand how to read a P and L. I understand mm -hmm. what gross margins mean. I understand what that means against like our cash balance or our balance sheet. Um, so having that level of business fundamentals, I think is uh, super valuable. Okay. Um, the next thing that I think you get in, or at least I got from, uh, this is more in my medical device time, which is still manufacturing, but it was more, it was venture funded. So it was like getting closer to SaaS, like it's venture funded tech. Um, and the thing, that, the thing, the key things that I learned there is like how to put together a strategy that marketing leads a go-to-market strategy through like marketing owned the go-to-market at that company. So getting that separated yeah. out from sales and bringing it into its own marketing owned, owned product. Marketing. Yeah. Product roadmap, positioning and promotion, um, pricing strategy and our overall distribution or sales channel. Right. So the strategy, the execution of those strategies live in different functions. But the person who the comp the department or leader that developed the strategy was our CMO. Yeah. Um, and so that's the level of strategic think business, strategic thinking in manufacturing companies and things like that from a marketing angle, I find to be more strategic. Um, so those are things that you could potentially bring that I think have definitely lended me well in this space. Okay. Right, because most SaaS marketers are very like tacticians. They're more like prom only focused on promotion. I'm not mm -hmm. obviously there's nuances, but that's like a generalization that I see. And so if you can bring like the how do we think about positioning the product? How do we think about doing customer insights and bringing that into demand generator podcast? How do we think about um, like how we could like run our uh, like our sales process or our partner strategy better because. Like a partner strategy for, for me when we came from those companies, it was really like a distribution strategy. Like we would sell products to distributors and then distributors would sell them, which is basically like a reseller model in SaaS. Yeah. Um, so there's a, like business, while the industry is different, business dynamics are pretty consistent. Okay. So understanding yeah. business fundamentals can very be very well crossed. I will tell you that there is a... Uh, there is a barrier to getting into SaaS that is doing that this whole industry a huge disservice. I was about to say it's a it huge seems like disservice. Kind of a walled garden mentality it's where, the, where they want previous SaaS experience. I couldn't get a job at a SaaS company in 2019. Can you believe <laughs> <Yeah>. that? <laughs> right? Like, and it's yeah. not just in marketing, it's in sales, it's in all the other functions. They're doing themselves a huge disservice. The same thing with every industry, right? I worked in medical device and it was very hard to get in there. And every every C level executive on the on in medical device companies has been in the medical device industry for twenty years, yeah. right? Homogenous thinking, old stale thinking. They need to bring in people from Google. They need to bring people that came from other places. They need new thinking so that the, that industry can innovate. 
Um, and so in whatever it, it uh, let me, I've sa- I said this a long time ago, but I need to say it again. Like um, industry experience is totally overrated, totally overrated because industry experience was super valuable in 1980 when there was no internet, when there was no information, when you didn't have like the internet, you didn't, you had to, the valuable things that you brought, you brought a Rolodex of contacts, literally like a book, right? Like there wasn't even a cell phone. So you have like a book of contacts that you can call, you know what trade shows to go to and you understand like the industry and things like that. Now you can learn all that stuff in three months. And that's like, so the barrier to moving through industries is just totally broken. Um, and, and so, yeah, the, the world is different. I just haven't seen companies think that way in terms of their hiring yet. Yeah, it's getting the hiring managers and whoever is in charge of bringing those people on board to realize that maybe industry experience from outside the industry could be beneficial, new ways of thinking. Uh, yeah, and I've just like, um, you you don't get innovation with all people that all think the same way. Yeah. Well, that's, that's good advice. And then, yeah. so the flip side, so I would use that to your advantage, for... actually. I don't know. Like it's, it's worth a shot. Like I, yeah. um, and I'll let, I'll let you get to that question afterwards, but I would try and use that to your advantage. I'd be like, look, like I don't come from here. These are the things that I bring to the table that I think are different than other people that you're, you're looking at. Like I, yeah, I don't have software experience, but I've been going to Chris Walker's thing for a year. I've implemented some of these strategies. I've tested them. This exactly. is working, right? So there's a way that you can craft a story where you actually become the top candidate. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I would use it to yeah, your that's advantage. That's what I've been trying to kind of angle in on. So yeah. yeah, that is kind of exactly what I've been thinking of. And then the flip side, what do you think? Um, what do you think people from this type of background are, are short on when they come into SaaS? Hmm. If you can't think of anything off the top of your head, that's totally fine, but just kind of curious. Um, I think there's a, a level of like languaging metrics, um, of like the they rely a lot on tech and data. And so if you don't have a like a fundamental understanding about how that stuff operates, it can be a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah. So yeah. understanding maybe the CRM funnel and the, the all the, the you know layers of, of uh, other SaaS programs they're using to uh, integrate into that uh, that we might not be using because we're uh, not as advanced with uh, those types of technology. Totally. Yeah. How does data okay. flow? What things are being used in what places? What are the trade offs? Like, how do I how do I look in the CRM to get X, Y and Z? Um, those are some things that I uh, would be the. It's the thing that comes to top of mind for me first. Okay, yeah, that's, it, that's it's, great. Those advice, are easy because yeah. that stuff's all easy to learn and tactical. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great because, yeah, ours, um, you know, in the manufacturing space, it's way simpler than what I see a lot of examples of people using on LinkedIn. So yeah. It'd that's be, awesome. Thank it, you, Chris. It'd be lucky if we got our uh, sales reps to use Dy- Microsoft Dynamics back for yeah. manufacturing. Oh, yeah. Man. <laughs> I, I could I could go on a riff about, about that. I won't waste everyone's yeah. <laughs> time. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. Cool. Hope that was helpful. It was probably helpful yeah, for helpful. others too. Thanks. Squeeze one more in, Angelica. Uh, you no. Want to do one more? Uh, whatever. I'm actually. Yeah, we'll wrap. Uh, let's okay. do one more. Let's. We'll. We'll. We'll do one more. Okay. It'll be okay. Fun. <laughs> um, okay. Martin, you're up next. You had a great question. Yeah. Thank you, Chris, for uh, taking my question. So um, I've got a big presentation coming up for uh, the leadership uh, of our company and sales and marketing departments, uh, where I want to pitch uh, a demand gen approach. Uh, and I was wondering uh, what are the key topics, the key things I should focus on to get their buy-in. But because 
Right now, uh, marketing is a little outdated, you know, uh, more like uh, pre-sales, running uh, paid campaigns with eBooks and stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm gonna do this quick so we can wrap up. Number one, assessment of the business data. You're running all that pre-sales stuff right now. Just take a look. How is it helping our sales team win? What are we getting for an ROI? And I, I don't go in there and say, this stuff is bad. I'm just like, here's the data. What do you think about it? Like it's cost us this much to get a qualified opportunity. When we run LinkedIn ads, our sales team is winning them at this much marketing right now is contributing whatever 6% of overall revenue. Like, do you feel like this is working or not? So, and just present the business data. Cause it's all that when you're running an old school model, it's all there. Um, you could compare it to like, uh, I'm not sure if there's benchmarks out there, but you could compare it to like what it could look like. That's one thing. The next thing I would bring in is direct customer insights. So our customers, whether it's a recording from a call, whether it's from a survey with data, this is what our customers are telling us about how they want to buy, which is totally misaligned with what we're doing right now. I think that though, and then the third one is present a, what are we going to do instead and why? And that's, so in, uh, without a ton of time, that's the places that I would focus, but I don't, um, it sounded like how you asked the question, you got to spend more time on why, like why, what we're doing right now isn't working. Like you got to get people to buy into that before you show them what are we going to do instead? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. agree. Thanks. Okay. Happy Thanks. to help. Great advice. All right, everyone. Uh, really appreciate you all being here. I hope you, uh, hope you took some stuff away. I, um, I'm going to continue to talk through because I just see when you can really hit marketing, right? Like how it's, it cannot be replicated in any other way. And we went through the different steps of doing that. So if anyone, like if you're in the chat before you head out, would love to know, like, what what was the most important or most impactful sort of like lesson or takeaway that you have? If you have one, uh, one takeaway, would love if you could share that with me and the others so we can use that as insights about how we craft the content in the future. Um, and uh, we do these, uh, the next one up, I think it'll be in the first week of April. So looking forward to seeing you. I think it's April 8th, if I'm thinking correctly. Uh, maybe April 7th. Someone will check with you, but sometime in the first week of April, we'll have that on a Thursday. And uh, I love having you all here. I love doing these. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll see you next time. Hey, everyone. Really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.